Blog Talk Radio. topic that we're tackling today is not necessarily a tough one, but it's certainly a fascinating one, I think. We're talking... You know I have the first time with that audio, Chuck. I I always say nobody listens to this show for my technical expertise, that's for sure. Um, I'm speaking with Chuck Derry from the Gender Violence Institute. Welcome, Chuck. Hi, thank you. Good. Um, Glad to be here. Good. Well, welcome to our listeners as well. We're talking about why does he do it? You know, one of the things uh, in working with domestic violence and people who work in the field, they always, people who don't get it, people who don't have a lot of exposure to the to the dynamic of domestic violence, always ask the question, well, why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just this? Why doesn't she just that? And I know um, it gets frustrating because the question should be, well, why does he do that? You know, and not why does she do this? She's, you know, she's the victim, right? But nobody ever seems to say, well, why does he do that? What makes him do that to her? They always ask, well, why doesn't she do this? Or why does she put up with that? Or why does she, she, she? So when I saw an article in Voicemail Magazine last fall written by Chuck Derry, um, basically, why does he do that? What does he get out of doing that? I thought, well, hallelujah. Somebody's asking the important question. So I contacted Chuck, and we came to this point of doing this show. Tell us a little bit about your background, Chuck. What brought you into the field of gendered violence? Well, I started in uh, 1983, and uh, I was a construction worker at the time, and I was moving to a local community, and my wife at the time had just gotten a job at the Batter Women's Shelter to work with children, and I had... uh, some colleagues who are just starting to look at how do we address and work with the criminal justice system in uh, responding to domestic violence crime. And they were looking for someone to work with men who batter. And um, I thought, hmm, that might be, you know, a good opportunity for, you know, personal growth. You know, I had no idea it was going to radicalize my life, actually. Uh, so I started working in a feminist women's organization, uh, really looking at the foundations of uh, sexism, and that's men's violence and looking at the institutional responses to that violence and really using the model that came out of Duluth in 83, or excuse me, in 82, and really looking at this collaborative uh, community, coordinated community response to domestic violence. And I was hired to work with men who batter and and also worked with the criminal justice system through that time for about 10 years and then created the Gender Violence Institute and been doing a lot of uh, technical assistance and training and and consultation on uh, sexual and domestic violence. In the last year, been and doing more on engaging men in uh, stopping this before it starts, too. That you know, that's such a gratifying movement. I've seen that too in the last few years. More and more men and men's organizations are jumping on board, saying, "You know what? Let's take care of this problem." Um, and it and it's really a gratifying one. Um, so, with the Gendered Violence Institute, what is the the focus? What's your mission statement for the the, the institute? Uh, to end men's violence against women and children, and really okay. look at the um, and really doing a lot of work with the institutional responses, um, uh, so that there's assistance for uh, women who are being battered and their children, and also consequences, uh, accountability for men who batter. And so it's been you, uh, a lot. Of, that's right. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. We, we well, use the, the terminology, you know, the, the the coordinated community response, and that sounds like that's what you're you're talking about. So that all of those organizations out there, all of those social service things, are all working and marching in the same direction instead of, you know, off on their own doing whatever. Uh, and is is that appropriate definition for coordinated community response? It can be. It, originally, it was designed, and when I use it, I'm really looking at the criminal justice system response and the civil uh, court system response, so protection orders, criminal justice response, batterers groups, and advocacy programs. And then, as well, bringing in uh, agencies like child protection agencies and others who may be um, uh, impacted by the crime or who are involved in the case, but uh, 
really looking at and focusing on the criminal justice and civil justice system response. Okay. So um, have you seen a change in 30 years? There is, um, 30 years ago, we didn't have the models um, for uh, comprehensive models for policies and procedures, uh, interagency protocols, right, for criminal justice system response from 911 through case closure. We've got those now. Blueprint for Safety is like um, the most comprehensive uh, manual for criminal justice uh, system collaborative responses on the planet. Uh, this model, Duluth model of the Coordinated Community Response just got a United Nations Award in 2014 as the most powerful policy model in the world for addressing yeah. domestic violence. So we've got the models. Now the challenge is the implement, implementation of those models and getting people to implement them. Um, within the criminal justice system and within other um, helping professions and um, even having the adequate training that's uh, useful for helping professionals on university campuses. It's quite astounding how little information is given to uh, masters of social work, clinical social work around domestic violence, even though 90% of their clients are going to be influenced by domestic violence or law enforcement getting training specifically to domestic violence crime. So there is still um, major gaps that need to continue to be bridged, uh, but it is obviously better than it was 30 years ago. Uh, when you uh, first started this, um, how many people were working in this field in your particular area? Well, it was just so 83, so the first shelter um, in Minnesota uh, came about in, I believe, 78. And so it was rather new. And um, so I can't tell you for sure how many people were working in the field at that time. Uh, not many, predominantly women, of course. Um, uh, but there was a good, there's enough people and there is enough commitment and enough passion to make this happen that um, it, was wor it was happening in multiple um, communities, six or eight different communities in Minnesota at the time. So we would all meet and have conversations and strategies about how do we, um, first we had to change the laws and then for probable cause arrests, and then how do we get law enforcement to arrest? How do we talk to prosecutors? How do we talk to, and a particularly male-defined system, how do we get them to care about men's violence against women and stop it? That's not a private issue. It's a public issue, it's a, and it's not a relationship issue. It's about an individual who wants to control the other individual and use violence to do so. So how do we train? What are the protocols? What are policies? What are practices that will uh, increase victim safety and hold offenders accountable at the same time? When so it's been a challenge. Yeah, well, of course, and and I know that just in the last year or so, the United Kingdom has made it has made coercive control um, illegal, and there's some discussion about that in this country. And most of the discussion is, well, how could you enforce that? You know, I mean, how can you possibly? Um, but have you seen any kind of movements toward uh, recognizing coercive control as a form of domestic violence? So I always think of. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure what that. Um, what's what that defines? Because I always see domestic violence as you know you're using the physical violence as a way to coerce and control the other individual. And so there's other kinds of tactics. Once you have the physical violence in place, there's these multiple other tactics that can be used around isolating her and economics and using the children and manipulating the system to con to control her. So. Um, is a coercive control have less to do with the physical violence and more to do with economic control and emotional abuse and those kinds of things? That's my understanding. It's basically, and also heavily, the, the implied threat of violence. Whether uh -huh. somebody comes right out and says, I, if you don't do this, I will hit you, it's the implied uh, threat of violence that mm -hmm. um, is key, I think, to the coercive control. The, the, the implied uh, dire consequences that I can Im impose upon you if you do not do what I expect of you. Um, so it is slipperier. I mean, you know, if somebody hits you, I mean, that's very clear. Um, but with that kind of stuff, you know, it, it, it is a slippery concept. Um, but nevertheless, people, the UN and, as I said, the United Kingdom, they're starting to recognize it as a legitimate form of um, control over another person. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I just I just wondered, you know, if that was something that you had. No, I hadn't. I haven't engaged that um, with any significance outside the this um, pattern of physical and sexual violence, and then the, all the other tactics that are used um, to control her. I mean, the power and control yeah. wheel is like the primary guide that we use um, mm-hmm. to talk about battering. It's not just yeah. violence in and of itself. It's what the violence provides the batter. If you're big enough, and you, if you're bigger than the other person, that has a lot of power. The physical and sexual violence has a lot of power. Exactly. If you're not exactly. bigger than the other person, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and this. Well, I was to say that's a whole other discussion. But I mean, even if you're not bigger than the other person, if you have, you know, different muscle mass and blah blah blah, then you know, it still gives you um, uh, an advantage when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Join us. I, I want to move on to our, our core question here, which is, why does he do that? Uh, why does he perceive he does that? And what has uh, Chuck found out about it? So, if you'd like to join our conversation, give us a call six four six. Three seven eight zero four three zero six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. Our chat room is open. I see we already have a couple people in the chat room, so please feel free to type in any questions that you might have or comments for me, and I will pass them on if you don't want to get on the phone yourself. So, Chuck, let's get to the meat of it. What have you found out? First of all, let's talk a little little bit about why did you think to ask this question. Why did you start asking this question in the groups that you, of, of abusers that you work with? Well, when I started in 83, we were using an anger management model, and we thought mm-hmm. that, you know, they just couldn't control themselves under certain circumstances, so we'd give them some life skills and help them control themselves better. And then the guys were in looking at self-esteem issues and shame issues, and so they were feeling better about themselves, and they are articulating their feelings uh, more effectively, and, uh, and they are still beating their wives. And so now we had happier, more well-functioning batterers. So we thought, hmm, okay, that is not exactly <laughs> yeah, what, we're, what yeah. we're looking for. At the same time, uh, in Duluth, uh, had multiple uh, domestic abuse intervention project had multiple focus groups in uh, Duluth with battered women and asked them what are the experiences of uh, being abused. And that's where the power and control wheel came from. And so then that power and control wheel suggested more conscious behavior. Right, but I still actually was quite um, adamant that we've got to deal with shame and we have to deal with these other pieces. Uh, I was working. In a, uh, my boss was a female, and she said, "Chuck, you know." And I was doing presentations. She said, "Chuck, you know, you 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 tell guys that they should take leadership from women. Why, why don't you try being submissive for a year?" Right? This is like <laughs> after a year of debate with her, you know. <laughs> and and she was right. You know, I, I had. And uh, I said, fine, I'll go in there and I'll start asking them questions. I know they can't answer. Fine. You want me to do that? Okay, fine, I'll do that. <laughs> I start asking the questions, and then they start answering them, right? And it blew me away. I had no idea, actually, how sophisticated they were because I never asked the questions because how I thought about domestic violence was leading me in the wrong direction because I had a misunderstanding. And so when, in this process then early on, I thought, well, then what are why are they doing it? Let's let's ask them. How do you benefit from this violence? So one day I asked them, "How do you?" And this is about twenty guys in a room in a group. I said, "So what are the benefits of your violence?" And the guys all go, "Well, there are no benefits." And this is pretty typical. Men will deny their behavior and they'll deny their intent, right? And I said, "Well, we must be getting something out of it. Otherwise, why would you do it, right?" And then the men start talking. And then we filled a four-by-eight-foot blackboard full of all the benefits. And then we ran out of space. And then I stood back, and I'm looking at this board, and I'm going, oh, my God, why would you give it up? And I'm thinking, should I ask him? I don't know, you know. So then I ask him, why would you give this up? And then we filled a two-by-two-foot space on the board. And it was like getting arrested, orders for protection, divorces, uh, having to come, having to come to groups like this, and not being not being invited to my adult children's wedding. And that was about it. And when that occurred, the first time I knew this was true, but the first time that happened, I looked at all these benefits listed out. I thought, wow, um, 
I fully understood the importance of a strong, consistent criminal and civil justice system response to domestic violence, right? In those days, a lot of people were making arrests to get men into batterers groups because they're thinking that was a cure, batterers groups. But as, and this is true today as it was then. If I had to choose between a batterers program for intervening in domestic violence or a criminal, strong, consistent criminal justice system response, I would toss a batterers group out every day because the cost-benefit uh, ratio is so uh, desperate. There are so many benefits to this violence. And so that once and yet I that's realized kind this, of counterintuitive, right? I mean, the the way that we as a society tend to think about things is, well, we'll we'll give them therapy, we will um, uh, show them the error of their ways, we will work with them, you know, uh, rather than the hand slap, we try to do the talking. Um, and what you're yeah. saying is that in this case, maybe the hand slap is the best approach. It is uh, more than a hand slap. It's, those other theories are based on this idea that he doesn't know any better, and if yeah. he only knew better, he obviously wouldn't do it, or that he's out of control of himself. And those are great theories for men who batter. They love those theories because they're not holding <laughs> accountable in any way. Yeah. Yeah, I fantastic. can't help it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have an anger problem. We'd have guys who are, you know, they order a pizza, <clears throat> right, and then they start getting into it with their partner and getting abusive and they're raging and they're doing all this stuff and the doorbell rings. And it's a pizza guy. And they stop, they walk over the door, oh, hi, how are you? Oh, here, and here's a $5 tip here. Thanks a lot, man. And take the pizza and then they go back to attacking their wives, right? We were hearing these stories all the time through the 80s as we were trying to figure out what's the appropriate approach to men who batter. Um, and so as we began to understand the functionality of the violence, it shifted our approach dramatically, and we became way more effective. Is there a correlation between men who batter and workplace bullies? Well, the correlation, I think, is uh, what does it get you? Mm-hmm. How do you benefit from that? You know, so bullies... You know, that, that workplace bullies, that stuff, is that works. That's why they do it, until it doesn't work anymore, right? right? Well, and that's what I have starts... always said. I think that's the core of, of, you know, why I really, you know, was drawn to your article. You know, I mean, clearly, why do they do that? Because it works. It gets them what they want. Yeah, it seems really simple. Uh, but it's surprising how few people grasp the level at which it benefits them. Um, and and how well, sophisticated men who batter are. Yeah. Well, back you know twenty years ago, our assumption was that it was only low ed- educated, low income uh, type people that that resorted to to this behavior. Um, and we've learned a lot in thirty years. You know, it 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 does. The demographics don't matter quite so much uh, as the individual. Am I correct? Oh yes. Yep, that's right. Yeah. No, it goes across all demographics. Yep. So let's talk about, I have your article in front of you, or I have your article in front of me, and, um, you know, let's just talk a little bit about what some of the responses were that you got when you were writing these answers on the the chalkboard. She's scared and won't go out and spend money. How deeply felt is the whole concept of I control the money? for an abuser? Well, if you just think about your own relationship, if you're in a relationship with somebody and you would get to control all the money, you know, they're working, you're working, but you get to decide how all that money is spent, I mean, just take a minute. No negotiation, no no discussion. Oh, no, no, uh -uh, no. You could have a discussion, but, you know, it didn't matter in the end. You got to choose, Uh you know. I mean, if you just think about what, you know, what are the benefits of being able to control the money in a relationship, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I want a new fishing rod. Okay, I'm getting one. I want a yeah. new gun. Okay, I'm getting one. I want a new pair of skis. I'm getting one. I want a new ATV. Yeah. She needs a car, but uh, I don't know. I want the ATV. Getting that. Getting a new boat. You know, I want some money so I can go have some beers with my friends because we don't have that much money. You know, yeah, the kids, yeah, they're growing out of their clothes a little bit, but come on. They'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Control all the assets. Control the, you know, own the house, own the cars, own the property. Right? Where is she going? Yeah. Where is she going? She's going to the streets. 
if she leaves, she's going to the streets. And so it's a wonderful, money is like a very powerful way to control another individual, if you can control the money. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, it's amazing. Okay. Some of the other responses, respect. Do some men clearly think that power over others equals their, the other's respect of them? I mean, that really is how that it's perceived? Well, um, you know, when the way they're using it for respect means um, you will listen to me ah, and you will do what okay. I want you to. That's respect because their belief is I have that right. Or it's not a, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's just I know this will work. And so I can yeah. get her respect. She won't argue back with me. You know, I don't have to negotiate. I can get what I want. I'm king of the castle, right? I don't have yeah. to get up with the kids. I don't have to take out the garbage. I don't have to do the dishes. Supper's at the table for me. I don't have to clean the bathrooms, change diapers, do laundry. Nothing. I don't have to do anything. All I have to mm-hmm. do is come home and have supper on the table and then go watch TV if I feel like or go out to the pub or go do something else, whatever I want to do. And a lot of this just comes with a look or it comes from a, a, a beating that happened three weeks ago. And yeah. he doesn't have to do, he doesn't have to be violent with her every day. He doesn't have to be violent with her every month. Be violent with her a couple times a year and that's enough. Yeah. And they'll talk about that. Really? Um, th- how calculated are these responses? Oh, it's, it's you know, <clears throat> the guys will talk about their look. They have a look. They can just oh, God, yeah. look, right? And so you can have a guy would talk, I remember a guy talking about being at a party and his partner, his wife was talking to somebody he didn't want her, he didn't want her to. And so he looked at her and he just kind of gave her his look, which was just kind of a nod. And in 45 seconds she was standing next to him. And the man, the person that she was talking to had no idea what was what had happened, and the person that he was talking to had no idea what had happened, but she got the clear message, you get your butt over here now or you're going to get hurt, right? And so they're very sophisticated in how they do this. Um, they're very sophisticated in uh, playing with her psychologically, making the rules and then breaking them. Here are my expectations when she meets them, denying that those were the expectations, blaming her yeah. for any violence. If she hadn't done this, this wouldn't have happened. And how much yeah, it seems like keeping keeping her off balance. She never has solid ground because when she thinks she knows the rules that's going to keep her safe, the rules change, and yeah. the ground is is flipping again. Does that is that an accurate? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then she's um, got three kids that she's got to worry about as well, right? And keep safe, yeah. and then yeah. he'll use the kid as a way to a lot of her. users that I that I have met are actually very kind, or at least they appear that way. Um, but you can sense that there's something. They can be just really kind and nice, and and they appear to be very loving. They do change diapers when they feel like it. They do do some of these things. And then they get all sorts of positive reinforcement from friends and family for how involved they are. And yet the woman is there knowing what he's really like. And that seems to me um, to be a more vicious position for the the victim than just if he um, fits the stereotype of never caring about changing the diapers, never caring about the children, never caring about uh, doing anything nice for anybody. Yeah. It's so I worked with about fifteen hundred men in a ten year period and I can count on two hands the guys I disliked out of fifteen hundred, right? Yeah. So no, they're very there's many things that are charming about men who batter and many things that can be lovable about men who batter and many things that can be that you wouldn't suspect and, and women are of course entrapped by that as well because people don't believe them. How could I can't yeah. believe he would do that to you, right? And the men know yeah. about this. The men Men will, will set women up, right? They'll be very nice. It's very hard to determine. It's not consistently easy to determine if a man will be abusive. Sometimes it is when he's controlling. He wants to know where you're going all the time, who you're talking to. He's texting you all the time. You know, there's some signs that he's, going, he's controlling and it may turn to abuse. But oftentimes there is not. And they don't 
start manifesting themselves until he's got her entrapped. They're, they're living together now in a house, or they're married, and then he starts slamming doors, and then he starts slamming cupboards and slamming his fist against the wall and on the countertops and then slamming his fist into her. And by that time, he's got her entrapped economically and in other ways, right, socially. And this is different for different uh, folks, right? Immigrant women, he'll use all kinds of immigrant um, strategies. If you're talking about lesbian relationships or gay male relationships and how can they use, the offender can use the um, institutional heterosexism in the culture as a way to control her or to control him, you know. And so there's, yeah. they will use not only the what's happening with that individual, but they'll use all the cultural norms. They'll use church, they'll use faith as a way to justify their violence. And then look for the church and, and faith, faith communities, and look to the law enforcement and look to child protection to support this notion that she's responsible, at least partially. Yeah. Yeah, they seem to be masters at that. I mean, just absolute masters at that. Um, But let's look at some of these other uh, explanations or reasons that they gave. Um, It keeps the relationship going. She's too scared to leave. Yeah. It's interesting, like you say in in the promo, the primary question is why does she stay rather than why is he doing that? And yeah. all the risk factors go start going through the ceiling once she starts leaving, right? Because she's oh, gotcha. saying, I'm an autonomous, independent human being. I get to choose what I'm doing with my life. I'm leaving you, right? And so then he just increases his violence as a way to, and other tactics as a way to control her. Well, and in so fact, the highest point uh, of lethality is when she decides she's going to leave. Uh, yeah. I always say, you know, okay, if she decides to leave, and if she lives through that, then she gets to deal with all the stuff that comes afterwards. But, oh, yeah. you know, if, if, chances are if he's going to kill you, it's going to be at that point. Yeah, or your family, your parents, yeah. your children, yeah. himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. It's, so, it's, you know, I mean, maybe the on... corollary to, to the question, why does he do that, is why would she leave? Um, you yeah. know, uh, it's true. And the, the, it's, this yeah, comes that, up in... This comes up in many communities that they have these domestic abuse no-contact orders that happen automatically after arrests, that mm-hmm. he can have no contact with her. With, and in some communities, they do that automatically without talking to her. And that's a, that's a mistake. They need to talk with her and see if this will increase her safety, because for some women, that makes it more dangerous. And some of the most dangerous offenders you want to keep an eye on so that you can assess what your next move can be, what are the... What what can you do to reduce that risk to the best of your ability, even though you cannot remove it? What can you do to reduce it? And sometimes that means you have to have keep your eye on them. Or if you're if you're a dairy farmer in Minnesota, right, and you've got 60 cattle cows that you have to 120 cows you have to milk, who's going to do that if he can't be there? How am I going to attend to some of these economic pieces? Or I've got a children with intense asthma problems and he's not working and I'm working. How am I going to maintain my economic stuff? Uh, so it's really critical that in any of these conversations with in, uh, interventions with the, with the um, criminal justice system or other helping professionals is that they're connected directly through with advocacy to battered women um, to assist them in figuring out what's how best to move forward and provide for safety for them and their kids. Yeah. Um, it, it, it seems so often... We we see the world based on our own, we as individuals see the world based on how we have lived it, and if we have never experienced this kind of terrorism, it's hard for us to envision that it's that it exists. It's it's easy for us to say, well, you just need to pack up and go. Um, if we don't know how likely and how terrified you are of being killed, if you do, um, we That's base so our judgments and our advice and our recommendations on our own lived experience and that may be horrible for somebody else who's living through something that you can't even imagine and yet i see that like daily daily we're doing that even even when we're not talking about domestic violence i mean look how often we will say to somebody well you need to take this class really how do you know that that person needs to take this class or go to this club or do you know um, it, it, and when it comes to something like domestic violence, it, it could be disastrous, you know, your your assumptions and your advice. Um, it, it's just a, a, a very difficult thing uh, for people to understand if they've never 
been around it if they've never seen it. Especially if the guy, as you said, is likable. And yeah. most abusers are very likable, except to the person they're hurting. Yeah. Um, I like. I really like the uh, that you use the term terrorism, right? Because mm-hmm. domestic violence doesn't quite cover. Battering gets a little closer. But torture and terrorism is closer to the experiences that they're they're having. And if you look at PTSD with um, battered women, victims of domestic violence, you'll see the higher rates than you see uh, service, active duty uh, service men and women. Right? I think active duty service men. is around 30%, 35%, maybe a little higher. But um, at least one study that I've seen places it as high as 85% for survivors uh-huh. of domestic violence. And even more conservative reports still show around 50%, 60%. Um, So when we think of PTSD, we do think of veterans. But, whoa, maybe we should also be thinking about uh, women who've lived with this. And sometimes they've lived with this for years. It's not just, okay, I've been in a battle zone for a year. Sometimes this has been for years. And when you look at the brain physiology and see the changes in the brain that are formed by uh, experiencing PTSD, um, you know, the, the longer you live in something like this, the harder it must be to get away from it. Yeah, and especially if you're living in a culture that this is happening to one in three women in the U.S. And how is that possible, right? Yeah. That's anytime yeah. we work with men who batter, we always talk, put in the cultural context that this many men could not be beating and raping this many women without widespread cultural support. So where is the support for your violence? Where are you getting it? On TV and video games, on music, out at the pubs, in pornography, at the strip clubs, you know, the jokes with your friends, right? Where, How are oh, you yeah. being supported for this violence to be continuing? Yeah. Uh, you know, I yeah. was at a, a, a little event uh, last week, and... Um, we were talking about humor. We were talking about um, um, what makes people laugh. And then we went on to talk about domestic violence uh, for, because people know I'm involved and interested in that. And one of the men there, and he was a very well-meaning man, um, but he said, oh, I know a joke about domestic violence. And I went, really? Okay. Because, um, you know, uh, okay. You know, I mean, you could find humor. that Black humor is very effective. I, I can go with that. Um, and then he proceeded to tell a joke, which I know I've, I've heard before, but it was pretty vicious um, and pretty insensitive. But you know what? I told him, go ahead and say the joke, you know, and, and I don't regret that. You could tell he felt a little creepy about it, uh, about repeating it, like maybe, oh, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't have just popped out and said I know a joke about that, you know. But part of me thought, now, how much of that reticence is because you know I'm involved in this, area, and how much of it is a, a core belief that there's something skewed about laughing over the situation. And right. I, I couldn't come up with an answer for myself, um, but something about the situation kind of, it said something to me, I'm not quite sure what. Have you been in a situation like that where somebody tells what they think is a joke about domestic violence? And I'm tying that in with your idea of the cultural support. Yeah, it's so common. It's such we have a cultural norm. You know, the worst thing I could be as uh, when I was two and a half, three feet tall, is who many of your listeners are, and who you are, right? It's the worst thing I could be, is a girl, run like a girl, throw a ball like a girl. Don't do anything like a girl. That's how I knew I was the right kind of boy. So obviously, boys. Yeah, yeah, the famous thing of the coach going to the, the team and saying, "Okay, ladies." You know, that's right. That's the, right. The so big foot down. Yeah. So, and then it was supported everywhere, just like you said. Coaches is a great example. And it's like, so, anytime you have one group of people who think they're better than another whole group of people, you will always see attendant hostility. That would be a cultural norm within that group, a hostility towards the other. So we see it with racism and homophobia, and sexism. So all the common words that men are using and the jokes that we do with each other when we're just hanging out and having a good time, are the same kind of common words, bitch and slut and C-word and ho and ho, right? It goes on and on. The same kind of words that men are using as they're abusing women. And the men are not making any connection between the use of that constant, common use of those words, to see those bitches, to see those hoes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to one in three women being beaten 
or the jokes in the bars or the jokes like you're talking about domestic violence that are anti-woman. So there's a there's a there's a woman-hating culture that happens within male culture, and it's global. It's not just in the U.S. Um, where I don't know anything about another guy, and the way that he'll want to bond with me is by making anti-woman or woman-hating kinds of comments. And even and I was surprised when I started noticing it. I was called out by women colleagues to start noticing this, that men were bonding with me around a woman-hating stuff and anti-woman stuff. And I was amazed when I started paying attention. It was happening all the time. I didn't even wasn't even didn't even realize it was invisible in front of my face. Uh, but I was amazed at how much it was about woman killing, woman killing jokes. Oh, woman killing! So, really? Yeah, woman killing jokes. Oh, women you can't live with them. You can't kill them. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm kidding. Well, yeah. Right? Something huh. as simple I as never that. even thought of that. But yeah, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And so I've run into that often as a male growing up and as a male uh, now. And then you respond. A lot of men are quiet when guys tell these jokes, and they think. Well, if I'm quiet, he knows I don't like this kind of joke. And the reality is, no, he doesn't think that you don't like sexist jokes. He just thinks you don't like that sexist joke. It's just like white people not laughing at racist jokes. The other white person who's telling the racist joke will think that you're just normal. Of course you like racist jokes because you're, you know, it's, you're a white person. And guys are going to go along with jokes about women, sexual exploitative jokes about women, because we're just guys. And that's just how it is, how we are. And uh, so as a male... My silence is consent. I have to speak. There's no neutral place. I have to speak up and say, no, that's not funny. One in three women are beaten and raped. And this is part of the reason why those guys can get away with it. If all the guys who weren't beating and raping women stood up with women as in partnership and said, no, this is going to stop, this would stop. Because all those guys who are beating and raping women right now depend on our silence, depend on our inaction, and depend on our support. Um, remember, you're in Minnesota, so you're fairly close to Ohio. Remember um, in East Liverpool, I think it was East Liverpool, Ohio, uh, a couple years ago, high school football team did a video. They raped a girl who was uh, uh, incapacitated and uh, a big deal, and and the uh, community really came out in support of the football team, uh, you know, members of the community saying, why are you doing this to him? You're going to ruin his career, his life, you know. Um, and I remember the video going around, or, or the audio. Well, I guess it was a cell phone video. And I did a show on it, and so I thought, okay, I better watch this. The thing that struck me, um, uh, besides the obvious cruelty of these young men, and um, was that at one point in the background, one male voice said, that could be your sister, man. I never saw anything written about that comment. I never saw any acknowledgement of that comment. But I heard that boy in the background on that video. And I thought, who is that boy and who raised him? Because I want to meet her and uh, them and congratulate them. This kid actually, he didn't apparently try to stop it, but he at least made that comment. Yeah. I, I, yeah. That struck me as, you know, for a high school boy in that kind of a peer situation, to have the the nerve and the bravery to stand up and say, "Hey, man, you know," um, that just really struck me, and it sounds to me like that fits in somehow with what you're saying about men having to not participate. Yeah, in it is. That's a good example. Yeah, of course he was blown off at the time and he didn't come forward any uh, further. But I totally agree with you that, he, and he spoke. It's and really he was a interesting. Year old right? kid. I mean, fifteen-year-old kid. Yes. You know, I mean, come on. I mean, the fact yeah. that he was able to to say that in in his peer group in that kind of a situation, I think, speaks very highly of whoever that kid was. Because um, yeah. most of us as teenagers don't have. I mean, we're not going to do anything that would might rock the boat. And Marcus is different. Um, um, period. So for him to do that, I I just was really struck by that, and that always amazed me that nobody ever said anything. Nobody ever looked at that, or at least none, and nothing that I saw, none of the discussions that I saw or heard or read um, mentioned this kid. And I thought, boy, you know, somebody, he was at least trying to do something right. Yeah. In that yeah. awful situation. It was, yeah. It was interesting. One of my first, one of the things that were, high, one of the highlights of my change as a male in appreciating the um 
gender justice and, and feminism and whatnot was one of the first conversations about um, what are men afraid of for speaking out and what are women afraid of about speaking out around sexist behaviors and things like you're talking about the Steubenville uh, video. And the men will say, I'm afraid the other guys won't like me. Oh, really? And the women will say, I'm afraid the other guys are going to attack me. Yeah. And the first time I heard that as a man, I thought, oh, okay, all right, I get it. I'm afraid the other guys aren't going to like me. Meanwhile, they're afraid the other guys are going to attack them, right? So juxtaposing these two experiences going, okay, if I'm a decent human being, if I care about other people, then I need to speak. And if the guys don't like me, too bad, because I'm going to be yeah, part of the exactly. solution rather than part of the problem. And yeah. so I agree with you. That's a great part. And I heard that, too, and was surprised that that came forward and was glad you to did. hear you re- that. You remember that, that comment? Yes, I totally Does remember that, that comment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I never heard and anybody... Boy, yeah. And I was amazed. Yeah. And the, the other amazing piece is how much the s- social society of that town was protecting the boys to rape that girl. Oh. Yeah. And this was really, you know, because, again, this is one of the benefits that men will say in this, this list of the violence is you can blame the victim. She's responsible. Yeah. And this is what was happening in Steubenville, and this happens on campuses and high schools and everywhere. It was she's a slut. That's what they said. She was drinking yeah. with these boys. What did she expect? And what does yeah. that mean? Someone says that. What do you expect? What, that boys will rape you if you're drunk and vulnerable? That's what we're yeah. saying about boys? Yeah, there is some truth in that. Well, and basically, yeah. Think again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's right. <laughs> you know, as the mother so of a daughter, I mean, I, yeah. you know, I you know, no, it doesn't give, if you're drunk, it doesn't give them the right to do this. But the fact is, if you're drunk, you have lost even more control of a situation. And it can, it can bite you in the rear end. It can, it can come back to you. So you have to be the one that's in control all the time. Which is great for the guys. Really great. Yeah. Male privilege. That's fantastic. Because we, we can do whatever we want to women and never be held responsible because it's my wife. She said this, she did that, she did this. It was this girl and i use the term uh you know this in steubenville she was under 18 over yeah. 18 they're women under 18 they're girls but so this girl did this or this girl did that and it, it allows this violence whether you're on campus and you're talking about party gang rapes at parties or party sexual assaults where she's too drunk to give consent or you're talking about in someone's home where the mayor is now assaulting the police uh, one of the police officers or a major businessman or middle-class guy it doesn't matter uh, it's just, let's look at her. It takes two to tangle. I mean, this is the thing okay. about this benefit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is, the thing about, this is the thing about this benefits thing is it really impacts how professionals and others think about this behavior, that it had nothing to do with her. This is really about him using this to get what he wants. Regardless, yeah. I've seen women do everything right and still get killed. Everything right. Everything. Yeah. And still get killed. Chuck, we have um, a person who has made several comments in the listen line about violence against men, um, and he's on the phone. Let's take a quick call from him and see what he has to say. Sounds good. Is this Stan? Hello. Hello, is this this Stan? Yes. Can you hear me? I can, Stan. Do you have a comment? Yeah, yeah. And first of all, great show. I appreciate the the guest that you have. He's doing a great job and everything. And I agree 90% of what you're saying. The only problem with what you're saying is I wish we would have the same conversations for both genders, not just for men. Because I feel like I'm hearing you, the, uh, the man that you have as a guest, that same man, we, we have so much privilege. Not really. Because as a man, if you didn't do those acts, and as a man, a woman decides to do those acts, she has more power than you. She can try to be... Okay, I've Stan, know, I've known I'm going to stop I've right known, there, Stan. Stan, stop yeah. right there so that uh, Chuck can address your comment before we move on to something else, okay? So, Chuck, right. can you respond to Stan's comment that if a woman acted the same way, she would have more power than a man? Um. It's really, of course, men who batter would come into groups all the time and will talk to police all the time about how she had hit him first or she had done this, right? Or he's got her backed into a corner and she pulls a knife out of the sink, right? Because she knows he's going to assault her. And I would ask the guys, what did you do? 
and they kind of laugh and they say, well, I just I took it away from her and I smacked her, right? Or when she slapped you, what'd you do? Well, I grabbed her by the wrist and I, I belted her, right? Mm-hmm. And so the context of the violence is critical and your abilities to control another person. If I personally, I'm, I'm about six feet, 200 pounds. If mm-hmm. I've got a six foot five, 250, 300 pound guy come up to me and start grabbing me and hitting me and beating me and choking me, what I know is I can't stop him. Unless I've got a weapon, I know how to use it. But that's not what's happening in most domestic cases. I can't stop them. If I've got a five foot four, 140 pound woman come up to me and start being violent with me, hit me, I know I can stop her right away. And so the power of that violence, the power of that violence is radically different depending on the context of who the offender is, who the victim is, and what's the intent of that violence. But, but I think Chuck, if you really Chuck, want to look but, at but, but Chuck, we live in a society in a way where we're telling men, no matter what, as a man, you don't hit a woman. We never tell women, like it comes back to when we saw a lot of uh, news that was saying uh, a man was basically hitting a woman and it was the big thing. They even did a 2020 show that showed, let's see what is perfectly violent. They took two couples and they said, let's put the man hitting the woman and see what the public in general is going to do. So they put the camera and everything, the man hitting a woman, everybody during the sector was basically trying to cover the woman. Everybody was there for the woman, saying, are you all right, woman? Are you all right, ma'am? Is there something we could do? There was people, even somebody who was ready to call the police and does that and everything. And they said, let's reverse the role. Let's see in a perfect world if, if the woman hits the man, what's going to happen. Nobody was answering. And even they went to those women and said, didn't you see the act? Yes, we did. Why didn't you interfere? Oh, he must have done something. Oh, he must have cheated. Oh, you must have okay. every Dan, excuse in the world. Again, I'm going to interrupt you because I'm looking at the clock, but I think I get the gist of what you're saying. So, um, Chuck, how do you respond to Stan? If he, Stan, I think, is saying, well, we have a cultural um, support of women hurting men. Um, would you agree or disagree, or how would you, you answer that? And Stan, I'm gonna. I appreciate your comment, but I am looking at the clock, so I'm gonna let you go. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I, did, I, think, uh, I wish it would have been 30 minutes earlier, but I understand. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, even if 30 minutes earlier, Chuck is the guest, so we're gonna uh, spend a lot of time with him. But I do appreciate your call and uh, keep listening, and we'll have Chuck respond to your uh, question about the cultural um, support uh, for women's violence against men. How do you respond to that, Chuck? Well, if you want, again. The violence is in context. So is the violence being used as a way to control this individual's life and control everything about this individual, what they swear, where they go, who they speak to, what kind of money they have, whether they work, whether they don't work, whether they're documented or undocumented, right? So the context of the violence is very different, and the impact of the violence is very different. So in heterosexual relationships, you're talking 95-plus percent where it's male and female violence that is able to then maintain uh, this level of control. Now, women will be uh, fight back with men who beat them. They will defend themselves with men who beat them, but generally it doesn't work uh, very well for them. And so then they stop and try other kinds of tactics. So they will fight back. And women have the potential to be violent. There's no question about it. If you look at les- if you really want to look at the perpetrators and the number of female perpetrators doing battering, setting up a system of con- coercive control through the use of violence, then you look in lesbian relationships. If you really want to look at the the numbers of um, male victims of domestic violence, then you look at gay male relationships. But again, the the impact and the intent is different in how this violence occurs. And we're looking at the problem of domestic violence and and homicides and domestic relationships and the torturous kinds of activity that's happening. We're not seeing that level of violence uh, from heterosexual women to heterosexual men. We're seeing levels of violence like that in lesbian relationships and gay male relationships and very similar kinds of dynamics of control. But in in straight relationships, um, we're not seeing it. And the impact of the violence, of women's violence, again, like I said earlier, if a woman slaps me, the impact of me is much different because I'm able to stop her rather than the impact yeah. of, uh, if a man slaps a woman and she is unable to stop him. The power that comes with that is relevant. Now, you can have judgments about the act, and everyone has all kinds of judgments about violence and when is it okay to use violence and when is it not. And so you can have those conversations. But the reality is the impact of this violence and the power that comes with this violence is in context. 
It depends on who's doing what to whom, what's their intent, and then what's the impact on that victim. And I think that's the critical, the critical piece here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that's very significant, and I think that we kind of um, we we lose track of that sometimes. Um, I think a, a lot of times when men feel threatened by the ideas that somehow they have to behave differently toward women than women behave toward them, that women can get away with things that they could never get away with, we lose sight of the fact that we're looking at um, the impact and the intent and all of those other things. Um, And it's easy to just go, well, he hit her, she hit him, it's the same thing. Um, I'm looking at our clock and I'm going, no, 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 can't be going that fast. And I do want to move on. I wanted to go over more of these um, um, reasons that men give uh, for abusing. But basically it boils down to, I want what I want and this is how I can get it. Am I right with that? Well, you know, so here's one, a total control in decision-making. Uh, get sex, right? Mm-hmm. I get, I can determine, uh, he can determine who he has sex with, how that occurs, and when it occurs. He totally controls the sexual. Um, get her to quit the job so she can take care of the house. Isolate her so friends can't confront me. Decide how the money is spent. She's a nursemaid. She comforts me. Supper on the table. No compromise equals more freedom, right? He says no compromise equals more freedom. He's talking about himself. If I don't have to compromise, I have more freedom. Yeah. Um, she will so look up to me. Basically, what we're looking at are very we, these guys are selfish, self-centered guys always. Well, sure. Yeah, I mean that's what we're. Yep, yeah. yeah, that's right. Controlling okay. and willing. And willing to hurt others to get what you want. Yeah. Um, you know, blaming her at... is a... Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, being able uh, to blame her, there's so much that he can, he, can, uh, he can avoid being arrested if he can convince the officer that was, she's to fault as well. Yeah. Um, because yeah. the officer is feeling, why is this fair if I think it takes two to tangle? He can, yeah. If he can blame her, child protection will be on his side, custody cases will be on his side, other family members will be focusing on her. It's, it's always interesting when you talk about men's violence and men's behavior that men will want to shift the focus, not just men who batter, but men in general, want to shift the focus to women. Yeah, but what about the women? Yeah, but what about the women? What about the women? And I'll always say, well, we can talk about the women later, but let's just focus on the guys right now. Let's just stay on this conversation. We can go to have that conversation another time. But why does this always come up when we're really talking about men's responsibilities and men's accountability? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a way to avoid exactly. the conversation. Um, it's kind of like, well, uh, you know, if you did something wrong, it's kind of like siblings. You know, I mean, one kid breaks the ceramic jar you've got on the kitchen counter, but then he, bl- you know, if he can shift the blame to the other one, then somehow or other that excuses him of any responsibility for breaking the thing. You know what I'm saying? I, I, yeah. It, it, it's a very childlike approach, but. It, nevertheless effective um in the much tinier list of why would you give it up that you you got um the basic ones were because i won't get arrested i won't get divorced um i won't have to uh to go to groups like this um and my adult kids won't invite me to their wedding if i don't give it up that kind of thing so again that very selfish self-centered approach um, nothing in there about, well, because it's wrong or because it hurts somebody else or anything like that. And that kind of struck me throughout this whole thing, um, you know, the extreme self-centeredness. We are all self-centered, you know, to, to a certain degree. But the extreme degree of the responses from the men in your group it was kind of surprising to me. Um, it, it, have you seen that? Do you have thoughts about that? or? Well, it's it. What's interesting about it is it, it it matches the extreme behavior, right? These beliefs, these intents, this commitment to um, control, and to not give that up uh, fits the behavior, uh, the extremities of the behavior. And it's what's remarkable is that they can do this in the culture readily, and have limited kinds of consequences for it. And this is true with sexual violence as well. And I think that is the, you know, primary kind of motivator for men who batter is that they can get away with it uh, without consequences. And if somebody finds out about it, 
they keep her from telling anyone, but if anyone does find out about it, he can then, he has plan A, B, and C. It was about her. Yes, I was wrong. That's right. I'll take 90% um, blame, but she has 10%. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. hear that a lot. Yeah. Well, and, and, and in so our chat room, we're getting lots of feedback about, well, why are you always talking about uh, men, not about both genders? And, you know, uh, statistics on um, the CDC, on how many men have been victims of intimate partner violence. And, um, you know, it's it's always, even if you use CDC statistics, it's still mostly women who are the victims of domestic yeah. violence. But the I CDC. always, in all shows, I get this big blurb, this big burst of how, no, it's women, it's always, the you know, men are victims too, men are victims too. And yeah. i got to tell you, my father was a victim of domestic violence from my mother, so I'm not unaware of this. But realistically, folks, <laughs> you know, statistically, that's relatively rare when a woman is the abuser of her male partner. And Chuck, I believe you used 95%. Female and female? somewhere in there. 92. You see them 92 to 96% of the times. Yeah. So, you know, go ahead and share your statistics, folks, but the fact is it's primarily men abusing women in heterosexual relationships. That's what we're talking about. So that's why we talk about it. The CDC report is very um, troubling, and there's some real problems with it because they do not contextualize the violence. They put mm-hmm. the violence out there, and they did not put it in context. They did not contextualize the women's violence, whether it was self-defense or in other ways what the impact was on the victim. And so people are well, using Well, they don't that. They describe whether it was retaliatory. They don't describe the... No, uh, no. Uh, I mean, there's so much left out, just so much yes. left out. And then you'll um, see people use it. And so yeah. I just want to... One of the things I want to point out here as well is that... So you'll, you're getting these chats about if we talk about men's behavior and privilege, and then there are other kinds of ways to resist that. And you've got to wonder why, why would that be? We're talking about men's violence against women. Why would I want to resist having conversations about that? Is, do I benefit from this much violence that men are doing against women? Even if I don't even touch my wife and I respect her, do I benefit from it? How do I benefit from it? You know, we have we have uh, we have wage disparities that are outrageous. Anywhere from sixty, what is it, sixty-five to seventy-nine cents on our dollar? Wage disparity for women. We have disparities in power and government and business. It's predominantly men, predominantly white men, right? We have disparities in uh, all kinds of every day. If men who are listening to this will listen to their partners and listen to them, what it means to live in this sexist culture and what kinds of things they have to do to protect themselves every day on the street and in their homes, you will realize they live in a different world. And you also realize that this is about institutionalized sexism and that men's violence against women, both the sexual assault and the rape, one in three women you know, guys, has been or will be sexually assaulted, and one in three you know will be beaten by a man she's in a relationship with, predominantly by men they know, sexual assault, all of them, with domestics. So what would happen if all that violence went away? What would happen if all that violence stopped right now? How would this world change? Mm-hmm. And would I would I have to start doing half the housework? Would I have to <laughs> actually be if I have to compete equally? I'm a white I'm a straight white middle class man. If I have to actually compete with all women and all folks of color in the workplace, am I going to get the next advancement? Am I really going to have to do supper every other night? Damn. And dishes? Yeah. Mhm. Right? I mean there are yep. these when you start talking about the benefits of men who batter, you also can identify that violence um any place where you have a whole group of people who are oppressing another whole group, violence is the foundation. The threat and the, the presence of violence has to be there. You can look at that historically and you look at that um currently. And so men's violence Chuck, against I women think- is a piece of that. Chuck, we could keep having this conversation for hours, but I see that our time is almost up. We've only got 30 minutes left, or 30 seconds left, rather. I have had a wonderful conversation with you. I thank you. Um, I usually end the show with a quote. I really don't have time to end the show with a quote because we used it all, and and I think this is more significant uh, than any quote anyway. But um, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing it with us. And, um, uh, you know, just... Just thanks. I, I really enjoyed this this conversation. And Stan, thank you for your call. 
And uh, please join us next week. We're going to have Sally Kenny, Dr. Sally Kenny, talking about gender and judging. So that's our show for this week. Uh,